Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. The year was 1925. It was January in Nome, Alaska. Richard Stanley, a six-year-old boy, showed symptoms of the dreaded disease of diphtheria. The city doctor, Dr. Welch, was alarmed by his condition, thinking it might be possibly diphtheria. A day later, young Richard died. Immediately, the town doctor began to immunize everyone he could there in the town of Nome, Alaska, with an experimental serum that had not been proven to be effective, but yet was showing signs of being effective. But he soon ran out of the serum. The closest serum was nearly a thousand miles over frozen Alaskan wasteland in Anchorage, Alaska. So he sent forth the call for the serum. The Alaskan Railroad was able to bring the serum 250 miles to the small town of Nenana. But still, there were 687 miles of frozen wasteland between Nenana and the small village of Nome. Twenty dog sled drivers volunteered to form a relay team to take the much-needed serum to Nome. They went from trading post to trading post, handing off the serum much as the Pony Express of the Western days did. When this first dog sled driver called a musher started off, it was 50 degrees below zero. For six days and seven hours, those mushers relayed that serum over the frozen wasteland, a distance further than from here to Chicago. But finally, the serum arrived, the town was vaccinated, and Nome, Alaska was saved. It was all because they had strived together as a team. No one person could have accomplished this feat. No one man could have taken that serum over the frozen wasteland. But as they were working together as a team, they were able to save the village. Vince Lombardi, that coach of the infamous Green Bay Packers, one of the winningest coaches in national football history, who in ten championship appearances won nine of those championships, speaks about teamwork. He says, individual commitment. To a group effort, that's what makes a team work, a company work, a society work, a civilization work. But 2,000 years before those words were spoken, Paul wrote to the church at Philippi about the importance of teamwork. He told them that they needed to strive together for the faith of the gospel if their mission was going to succeed. And that, by the way, is the theme of our mission conference that's coming up the 14th and 15th of May. Striving together for the faith 
of the Gospel. Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1 as we look at these words from the pen of the Apostle Paul as he is writing again from prison in Rome, not the same time of imprisonment that we have seen in 2 Timothy, but an earlier time of imprisonment from which he was released. But he's writing to the church at Philippi, and he says to them beginning in verse 27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Paul gives us a word picture when he says, striving together for the faith of the gospel, a word picture of an athletic team. That word, striving, striving together, those two words are one Greek word. We get our English words, athlete and athletics, from this Greek word. And so Paul had in mind the Greek games, the sporting games. And the prefix is added to this word that means with. And so it's talking about teamwork. He has in mind the teamwork that is necessary If a team is going to win, they all have to work together. Now, in this word picture, Paul tells us basically two things that we need to realize at the beginning. First, the church is a team. We're not just a group of individuals. We are a team. Now, that leads to the next truth. All teams have a purpose and goal. If it's an athletic team, the purpose is to win the contest, to win the game. If it is these mushers, their goal was to deliver the serum. As a church, we have a purpose. We have a goal. And that is to know Christ and to make Him known. Our goal is to reach the world for the gospel of Christ. We are on a mission. And that mission is to share the love of Christ with our community and with the world. And it's eternal consequences we're talking about. It doesn't matter if the Braves win today or not. That doesn't really matter in eternity. But whether we as a church fulfill our mission of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and with our world has eternal consequences. Every team has a goal, a purpose. Secondly, every team member has a job to do. Every member on a team has an assignment. It might be a bullpen catcher who never gets in the game. It might be the starting pitcher. But both have an assignment. Every person on a team has an assignment. They're not there just for looks. They have something to do. You have a job to help us accomplish the mission 
of knowing Christ and making Christ known. As a part of Westside, you're part of the team and you have a job to do. Next, each person must fulfill their job. You've heard it said a team is no better than its bench. A team is no better than the guy sitting on the bench. A team is no better than its weakest member. Every person must do their job. What would have happened if those mushers, if one of them had decided he was tired? He didn't want to keep going. You say, but preacher, he knew he had to go because the town depended on him. Their lives depended on him. He had to do his part. He wouldn't have stopped. Well, you and I are talking about eternal consequences. We're talking about the souls of men and women, boys and girls. Are you doing your part? Are you slacking? If one member slacks, it affects the whole team. A team pulls together. A team wins together. A team loses together. Paul says the church is a team. And the second major truth, not only is the church a team, but he's telling us in this phrase, strive together for the faith of the gospel, that evangelism is a team effort. Now hear that. I think we have missed something in evangelism because we have thought of it as an individual effort. You go out and witness. But you are to go out and witness as a part of a team. Evangelism is a team effort. When Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, who was He talking to? He was talking to His team, the disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That was His team. When He sent the disciples out to share the news of the kingdom, He sent them out individually or two by two? He sent them out two by two. Evangelism is a team effort. And that means every one of us has a part in that team effort. If we're going to accomplish our goal of knowing Christ and making Him known, we must realize that it is a team effort and every one of us has a part to play in that effort. What one of us does or what one of us does not do, it affects the whole team. We must get that concept in our minds. Remember Vince Lombardi said, individual commitment. To a group effort. That's what leads to success. Individual commitment. Each person committing to the group goal. The team's purpose. And ours is to spread the good news of Jesus Christ in our community and around the world. But every one of us has got to be involved. We cannot succeed if you are not doing your part as a member of the team. You say, well, preacher, what's my part? All right, I realize I need to do my part, but now what is my part? Paul tells us three things that every team member must do if the church is going to accomplish the mission that Jesus Christ has given it. And if you and I are going to accomplish the mission that Jesus has given Westside, then we too, each of us, must do our part. All three things. Number one, we must live righteously. We must stand united. We must act courageously. First, we must live 
righteously. Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We are to live like citizens of the kingdom of God. Now this is Paul's primary emphasis in this paragraph. This is the imperative verb in this paragraph. Conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. Live righteously. Now this word conduct, in the Greek it meant to live as a worthy citizen of a state. Philippi was a Roman colony. And these Christians well knew the responsibility that a Roman citizen had to live worthily. And so Paul is picking up on that thought. But he's not referring to them living as worthy Roman citizens, but rather to live as worthy citizens of the kingdom of God. Because he tells them in chapter 3, Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now that's righteous living he's talking about. Now he gives the reason why we need to live righteously, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your true citizenship is not here on earth. Your true citizenship is in heaven. You are a child of the kingdom. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Therefore, you and I must live like citizens of God's kingdom, not like the world. Christians must live differently. We've got to stand out. We've got to be different. Paul says, live like a citizen of the kingdom. Live worthily. Now look at Paul's own life in verse 21. He's talking about dying and living and and what all that means. And he says in verse 21, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Now what does he mean, for me to live is Christ? What does that mean? Well, if I said, for me to live is George Bush, then you would think, well, you're saying if I see you, I'm seeing George Bush. What you do is what he would do. That's right. So to live as Christ means to see Paul was to see Jesus. He was so wrapped up in the life of Christ. He was so committed to Christ. He was so ruled by the Spirit of God that when you saw Paul live, you were seeing Jesus live. He said, for me to live is for me to show people Jesus Christ. Because He's living His life through me. Paul says, for me to live is for me to live righteously. For me to live worthy of the Gospel. You and I must live worthy lives. Paul earnestly prayed that the Philippians would also live righteously. Look at the prayer in chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What's he praying? He's praying they will live a righteous life. He says that you'll have wisdom so you might approve the things that are excellent. And that you might be sincere and blameless when Jesus comes back. Paul knew how these Philippians lived would affect the success of the gospel. 
They were a team. And if one of the team members was involved in sin, it would affect the whole team. If one of the team members was involved in immorality, it would affect the mission and goal of the team. That's why He told them in chapter 2, beginning with verse 14, Do all things without grumbling and disputing. He's just taking an example of something that people do that, that is living an ungodly life in an ungodly way that hurts their witness. So He says, don't act that way. But notice why he says they're not to act that way in verse 15. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life. Paul says don't live like the world. Be different. Because you are to shine like a light into a darkened world. And if Christians are living like the world, if they're involved in sin like the world, there's no light. There's nothing but darkness. In Pensacola, Florida, a judge issued an order that when someone came into his court and was convicted of drunken driving, he would make them put a bumper sticker on the back of their car that read, How is my driving? Dot, dot, dot. The judge wants to know. Well, if you're a Christian, you've got a sign on your back that says, How is my living? The world wants to know. When you take the name of Christ, people start looking at how you're living. Are they seeing a godly life in you? or one that is a disgrace to the name of Christ. The story is told of Alexander the Great. He once met a lazy, good-for-nothing soldier in his army. And he stopped and said, Soldier, what's your name? The soldier looked up at him and said, Alexander, sir. Alexander the Great looked back and said, Either change your name or change your ways. When you take on the name of Christ, when you say you're a Christian, and Jesus looks at you, does He say either change your name or change your ways? A Christian who is not living a godly, righteous life is a detriment to the mission of the church, which is to know Christ and to make Him known. Is detrimental to the cause of the gospel of Christ. We're a team. Every team member affects the whole team. The Lord Jesus is our prime example of all of these. He lived a righteous life. The Bible says, though tempted in all things, He was without sin. He is the key to our righteous living. You remember in the prayer, Paul said, the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. You cannot live a righteous life in your own strength. But God never said that's what He wanted you to do. He says, let me live my life through you. Let me give you the grace to live a righteous life, to be different from your friends who are not Christians. Let me give you the strength to stand against ungodliness. To be different. To walk worthy of the gospel. 
You will ask Him and commit to Him to walk righteously. He will give you the grace to do so. So the first part, all of us have got to play as a part of the team if we've got to live righteously. Secondly, we are to stand united. Paul goes on to say in verse 27, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul tells these Philippian Christians they need to be united in one mind and spirit. You and I also need to be united in spirit and in mind. A team cannot succeed if it's not working together. A team must be united in purpose and goal. They must all be pulling in the same direction. Probably one of the best examples of of the importance of unity on a team uh, are those who who are in those boats that they're, they're roaring. And you know they have about 10 or 12 guys in there, and one guy's at the uh, end of it giving the the cadence, and the rest of them are, are doing the rowing. You know that you've seen that in the Olympics. You're going to notice, and they all are doing it exactly at the same time. I mean, just perfect synchronization. You know, like those synchronized swimmers. All of it's working together. If one of them gets off, it messes up the whole effort. They can never win. They have to be pulling. And they're pulling at the same amount as well. Same pressure. Same pull. A team's got to work together if they're going to succeed. Have you ever noticed wild geese flying, how they fly in a V formation? You know why they do that? That's by design. God has created that as teamwork. First of all, the one who is in the lead, when he gets tired, he falls back. And another one takes his place. Also, when they flap their wings, it provides air lift for the goose that's behind them. And that's why when you see them flying in that V formation and you see their wings flapping together, unity. It's been said that by doing this, they can fly 71% further than one goose could fly by himself. Because they're working together as a team. It's also been found that when if one of them gets injured or sick and it pulls out of the formation, two will go down with it and stay with it until it's able to fly again. That's teamwork. That's pulling together. And if you and I are going to succeed in the mission that God's given us, we have got to pull together as a team. Unity means working together. And a key ingredient in unity is humility. In chapter 2, Paul says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's unity. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Humility is a necessary ingredient for unity. There is no I in team. It can't be what you want. It's got to be the mission of the team. We've got to be on God's mission together. We can't have our own individual agendas. 
We must set aside what we want and unify around God's mission for us, and that is to know Christ and to make Him known. We must be unified in spirit and in mind. First, we must be unified in our vision. What is it we've got to see? We've got to all see that everyone is born into this human race separated from God and bound for an eternity in hell. We've got to all believe that. We've got to see that. We've got to believe that there are two billion people that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ that are bound for the eternity in hell separated from a holy, loving God. We've got to see that. We've got to have that vision. We've got to have the vision that the only way that a person can be delivered from hell and from the wrath of God is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. We've got to have that vision. He is not one of several ways. He is the only way. There is no other way. There is no other name given whereby men must be saved than the name of Jesus. We've got to believe that. We've got to have that vision. We've got to have the vision that how can they believe unless they've heard? And how can they hear unless someone is sent? We've got to have the vision that we must be a part of the process at some level. Whether it's praying, whether it's giving, whether it's going. But they must go. The gospel must go forth. We must have a vision that all who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. We've got to have that vision. We've got to realize what's going on in the plight of people without Christ. Not only must we be united in vision, but we must be united in desire. We must long to see people saved. We must desire for them to experience the love of Christ that we have experienced. We must share this common desire. We must share this deep yearning for people to experience the forgiveness that they can only find in Jesus Christ. That's got to be our heart's desire. That's got to be a greater desire than our desire to make money or our desire to be popular or our desire to, to meet our own goals and expectations. We've got to make it our utmost desire to have Christ known among the people of the world and in our community as well. This is our goal. Look at the Lord Jesus. He was unified with the Father in their vision. And in their desire. In chapter 2 of verse 8, it says, speaking of Jesus, but being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Father and the Son were united that the salvation of his people would only be accomplished through the perfect life and death and resurrection of the Son. And the Son was in full agreement with the Father that this was the way that it must be accomplished. And Jesus was obedient even to the point of the painful, shameful death of a cross. Are you standing united with us in our mission of evangelizing our community and our world for Christ? Are you standing united as a part of this team? The first thing you must do is Live righteously. Second, you must stand united in purpose and goal. And then thirdly, we are to act courageously. Verse 28, 
In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul tells the Philippians not to be alarmed by opposition. He says, it's a sign that your opponents are not Christians, that they're standing against you. And it's a sign that you are a Christian. Christians have always experienced opposition to the gospel. Jesus told His disciples not to be surprised when the world hated them because it hated Him first. Expect people to oppose us. Expect people to try to stand in our way to keep us from accomplishing our mission of knowing Christ and making Him known. We're not to be afraid because we do not have a spirit of fear. Paul tells the church in Ephesus, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. The picture you see is of a man by the name of Chen Jing Mao. He is now 73 years old. He is in prison in China serving a four-year sentence. He was sentenced in 2002. His crime was illegal evangelistic efforts. He sent his granddaughter to be trained as a Sunday school teacher. This was one of the facts that was brought up at his trial, used to convict him. His daughter went to see him a few months ago, and she said his legs had been so severely beaten that they were broken. And he had to be carried to see her by two prisoners. They had beat him and tortured him and broken his legs and would not even allow them to be set. Now, if you've had a broken bone, you know how painful it was before it was put in a cast so it couldn't be moved. His were not set. He's crippled. He's continued to experience beatings because he shared Christ and over 50 prisoners have come to know Christ to the horror of the prison officials. And they continue to try to silence him, but he told his daughter, while I am still alive, I will not stop sharing the gospel. This man knows what it is to act courageously. Paul says, in fact, to consider it a privilege to suffer hardships. You see the word grant? When he says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His name. That word granted in the Greek means to give someone a gift. Paul is saying, it's a gift. It's a privilege to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. First Peter 4 says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the Spirit of God, glory, and of God rest on you. Now I'm going to tell you a true story. And all of them I've told that they are true. What do you think about this situation? The coach comes up to this football player who is sitting on the bench. The game is going on. And the coach comes up to the player and says, I want you to go in the game the next play. The player looks up at the coach and says, I don't want to go in, coach. He says, I want you to go in the next play. I don't want to go in, coach. Now that player 
has been practicing for months in 90 plus degree temperatures. Hours of physical training and endurance. Sweating. 90% plus humidity. For what purpose? To play in the game. That's why they do all of that. Training and preparing and practicing to get in the game. And now he's got a chance to get in the game. And he's, I don't want to go in, coach. The coach has given him the privilege to get in the game and help the team accomplish his mission. He says, I don't want to go, coach. Sure, he's going to get knocked up. Sure, he's going to get beat up a little bit. Sure, it's going to get hurt a little bit. But hey, that's the privilege of getting in the game and helping the team accomplish its mission. He's striving together with the team. When it comes to sharing the gospel, sure, you may experience some hardship. Sure, you may experience some oppositions. But hey, that's why we're on the team. To share the gospel. To share the love of Christ. Sure, it's going to involve hardships. But that's what it's all about. Jesus, He experienced the hardships of the cross, but the Scripture says He joyfully experienced it. In Hebrews chapter 12, listen to these words. The writer says, Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. Oh, He despised the shame of the cross. He despised the pain of the cross. He despised what it was going to be like to become sin for us and to experience that separation from the Father. That's why He sweat blood drops in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before because He knew what it was going to involve. Yet for the joy set before Him, He considered it a joyful privilege to die where you and I could have salvation. It's a privilege to experience hardships for the gospel. What are some of the hardships that you can expect to experience as a part of our team at Westside? Now, I'm almost embarrassed to call these hardships compared to to Chin, Jane, Meow, and what he's going through. But for the sake, I'll call them that in parenthesis. The hardship of prayer. We're going to accomplish our mission. We've got to get serious about prayer. We've got to get serious about praying for ourselves, for praying for our church, for praying for our community, for praying for our missionaries, for praying for our nation. We've got to be willing to experience the hardship of prayer. Next Saturday morning, we're going to have a prayer walk. We're going to meet here at the church at 9 o'clock for a light breakfast, and we're going to go out and pray. You're not going to go out by yourself. We're going to send you out at least in twos as teams. Walk through the neighborhood just praying for the people that live in various houses, people we might see out working in the yard, praying for them. I hate to call that a hardship. Are you willing to be a part of the team and come and join us in prayer? Secondly, the hardship of sacrificial giving. Nobody's asking you to give your life. Nobody's asking you to be beaten Nobody's asking you to give up your home as you go home today because you've come to church like they're having to do in many countries around the world. We're not asking for that. Fortunately, your team is in the U.S., not in Cambodia, not in North Vietnam, not in North Korea, not in the Sudan, where your team membership would entail a lot more. 
Or are you willing to experience the hardship of sacrificial giving? I mean, giving means you'd have to give up something where it's going out to eat one extra time a week or having as nice a vacation as you might have had if you hadn't given sacrificially. You know, we've been short on our mission commitments for four months now. We have agencies and missionaries that are not getting what we committed to give to them. Is it because we've not been sacrificially giving? Only you can answer that for yourself. Third, the hardship of going. We've got an opportunity to reach out to our community on May 13th at Skyview Elementary School. Again, I hate to call this a hardship. I'd be embarrassed to stand before Chen Jing Mao and say, man, I'm asking our folks to go to elementary school from 12 to 2 o'clock and be a part of sharing God's love with some kids. Does it mean they're going to get beaten? No. He might say, does it mean they're going to lose their home when they get back? I said, no, no, no threat of that. What does it mean? Well, it means they're going to have to give up a couple of hours of a day. It means it might be a little hot and it might sweat a little bit. Are you willing? Will you be a part of that team? We've all got to pull together if we're going to accomplish the team mission, the mission God's given us. It's a team effort. We all must do our part if we're going to succeed. We must live righteously. We must stand united. We must act Courageously. Are you doing your part? The newspapers called it the miracle of Kew Creek. Nine miners were trapped 240 feet below the earth for three days, surrounded with waters that were 55 degrees. One of the miners said, We decided early on that we were either going to live as a group or die as a group. With the 55 degree waters that they were in, threatening hypothermia, when one of the miners would get cold, the other eight would crowd around him to warm him up. And then when another one would get chilled, they would crowd around that one. Speaking from the hospital after their rescue, one of the miners said, any certain time, maybe one guy would get down. And then the rest of us would have to pull together and pull him back up. And then another one of us would get down. And then we would have to come and together and pull that one up. But his concluding words were, but it was a team effort. The only way that it could have been and we could have survived is... It had to be a team effort. The only way we can accomplish God's mission for us is if we all do our part. It's a team effort.